everybody. It is Glenn with the Vinnegan Podcast at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We're glad you're joining us. And today we have with us um, a colleague from the University of North Georgia and a member of our board, Dr. Ann Tucker. Ann, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Glenn. So like you say, I'm a um, professor at the University of North Georgia, and I focus on Southern and Civil War history, but I look at it through an international lens. So trying to understand how the United States and how the South fit into the larger world around them. But they didn't, right? America is America, and we don't need to think about anyone else. You must be mistaken. Obviously. You know, and I think that has a lot to do with the way we do tend to think about the United States and, you know, American exceptionalism and the ways that, you know, as my advisor always said, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves really does position the United States as exceptional, as a unique entity within the world. But the reality is, as the United States developed, even all the way back to its founding, it really was being influenced by events happening abroad and by movements and ideas from abroad. And the United States, in turn, then very much influenced the rest of the world as well. Well, what were some of the the big, you're talking about the big influences from from abroad, especially on the founding. What are what are a couple of the biggest ones? So when we look at the founding of the United States, we're all familiar with, you know, of course, the Declaration of Independence and these amazing ideas that are written into our founding, ideas of equality and freedom, natural rights, self-government. And really, a lot of those ideas are ideas that our founding fathers, people like Thomas Jefferson, really learned from the international movement that was the Enlightenment. So these are Enlightenment ideas that Enlightenment philosophers in Europe, people like John Locke, were thinking about what does it mean to be a government? Where does the power behind a government come from? And these are where they start thinking about things like, you know, maybe instead of the power behind government as God said the king is in charge, the divine right, maybe the power comes from the consent of the governed. Maybe all men are created equal, and therefore, since they're all equal, the king can't be in charge of anybody else. Everybody gets to be in charge of themselves on the basis of this equality. So those are the kind of enlightenment-based ideas that, again, people like Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson, so many of our founding fathers were really steeped in this enlightenment philosophy and tradition, and were really drawing on those ideas when they envisioned and came up with the whole idea of the United States of America, a new nation founded on what was then still an experimental idea that the people can be in charge of their own government. Yeah, and you know that's that's a oh, that's an excellent point because as I you know when I tell my students, there's this idea of American exceptionalism that has been interpreted as we're awesome and better than everyone else, and I tell them you know America is exceptional but not in the way you think because. As Thomas Jefferson said, the United States had the chance to make the world anew, and it was going to take a lot of, you know, revolution and blood and upheaval in Europe to try to put those Enlightenment ideals in place, where in the United States it was, I don't want to say the word easier, but but maybe in the broad sense of things, that is the word. Yeah, I mean... 
Absolutely. It's, you know, one of the things that always strikes me about the Declaration of Independence is on the one hand, it's this very specific document talking about the way that this king has violated the rights of these colonies, but it's also a very universalist document talking about these rights that are self-evident that all men have, not just men living in these colonies of Great Britain that are now declaring themselves the United States, but all men. And, you know, like you mentioned, that idea then spreads from the United States into France with the French Revolution, Haiti with the Haitian Revolution, on into Europe with the revolutions of 1830 and 1848, and endless blood was going to be spilled throughout the rest of the world, you know, starting with the American Revolution right. as well, <laughs> to try and put these ideas in action. Yeah, that document, the, the seeds from Europe were sown in the United States and then the fruit was sort of distributed around the world because I've lost count of how many other documents, other, you know, declarations of independence or whatnot have been based on, on that document all the way up to, you know, very mid 20th century stuff, late 20th yeah. century stuff. I believe historian David Armitage has counted over 200 other documents that are based on the Declaration of Independence. See, folks, that's how you know she's a real historian. She actually knows that the, the other people and the actual numbers, uh, the rest of us just mutter along. So <laughs> I try. <laughs> right. So the Declaration of Independence, of, you know, we're talking about how it's sort of the, the secular scripture, if you were, of, of not just the United States, but the ideas of the Enlightenment that spread around the world. But there's one thing they tried, or Jefferson tried to put in there that they rejected, and that's, you know, trying to lay the blame for slavery and the slave trade at the feet of the king and and even the slave owners in the burgeoning new united states knew that was a bit of a stretch because slavery has certainly had a humongous impact on the united states and its and its history absolutely and that's you know tragically less positive international influence that has shaped the united states as well um all the way back to the Virginia colony in 1619, enslaved workers were brought to the colonies that became part of the United States. And these enslaved workers literally built the United States in many cases. So they certainly built the economy. And when I say that, Certainly, you know, we all have uh, understanding that the plantation economy and the southern states was based on enslaved labor, first with tobacco and then with the cotton boom and the early 1800s. But the reality is, it's not just going to be the southern economy that was based in this terrible institution of slavery. When we look to the antebellum north and the developing industry, things like the textile mills and Lowell, Massachusetts that we're all familiar with, those were fundamentally tied to slavery as well because, of course, the textile mills are processing slave-grown cotton. And it's not just the textile mills in Lowell, it's the textile mills in Lancaster and throughout Great Britain. Cotton was the U.S.'s leading export throughout much of the first half of the 1800s. And so cotton really becomes the linchpin of this growing industrial capitalist economy where slave-grown cotton from the South is being shipped to textile mills in the North and in Europe. 
and where banking and the finance industries are developing to provide the capital necessary for this international trade. We see um, major insurance companies and banking firms were founded to provide insurance on international shipments of cotton, to provide insurance on enslaved workers, tragically. And so this transatlantic institution of slavery really played a key role in developing not just the South, but the United States and its place within the world. That is very insightful, and I think that's something that a lot of folks don't realize, and that, but they need to know, you know, from an economic perspective, a political perspective, and from a moral perspective. It, you know, it's, it's the South's, uh, Southern history certainly has its, its share of hypocrisy, or I should say the Southern experience has its share of hypocrisy, but there were many in the North and around the world who, while they deplored the idea of driving slaves uh, for cotton, they certainly made a pretty penny off of the trade involved from that labor. And it's understandable why, you know, that is not the story we wanted to tell ourselves about ourselves. It's not a happy story. It's yeah. not a positive story. It does, yeah, but, it's not uplifting about but, our nation. Yeah. But I do think it's so important to understand this history because that helps us understand how we got to be where we are today. That's what history is, isn't it? It's an inquiry in the past that informs us in our own time and hopefully for the future. From an, from an international perspective, as far as the United States influencing others, and of course, you know, we could talk lots about the 20th century, but I think people generally kind of get that. Tell, tell us more about some of the, the European and, and perhaps even Asian countries in the in the earlier part of U.S. history that may have been influenced by the United States ideologically, politically, or, or how that exchange might have crossed the ocean without us even knowing about it. Absolutely. So, you know, again, kind of going back to this founding of the United States and the more positive theme that we've been discussing here, the United States really did come to provide a model republic for the rest of the world. So at the time that the United States was founded, the time of the American Revolution, there were no modern republics in the world at the time. And so, you know, what we mean by republic, we're talking about little r republic. So not the Republican Party, but this philosophy of government that says the people should be in charge of government and government exists to protect the people's rights. So this idea had been briefly tried in places like Corsica in the middle of the 1700s, and it had failed. So when the U.S. creates a republic in 1776, it really is this bold experiment and these Enlightenment ideas, and nobody knows if it's going to work, but lots of people like the idea. So as this Enlightenment philosophy really spreads throughout the Atlantic world, as everybody else is trying their own hand at revolutions and creating republics, they're looking at the United States for a model of how to do this. So in the French Revolution, not only are they basing the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen on the Declaration of Independence, as we kind of talked about a minute ago, but Thomas Jefferson is actively working with 
the French revolutionaries to help them direct their ideas here and this revolution. And again, when we see the Latin American revolutions of the early 1800s, there's this sense that these new republics and South America are sister republics with the United States. And again, throughout the European revolutions of 1830 and 1848, they're all hearkening back to the American Revolution as their major inspiration and model for what they're doing. So, you know, we're talking about the idea of American exceptionalism. In some ways, that's one of the places where it really does play out. And this idea that the U.S. was the first successful modern republic, and it really does then become this beacon for the rest of the world as they try to again, implement similar ideas as the ones that we had created. Well, let me, you know, and this, here's a, a question out of left field for you in terms of, you know, how those, how those revolutions and the, and the export of them worked, because most of them, and you've kind of alluded to this, especially with the French Revolution, didn't work as well as ours. They didn't seem to right. settle out and, and get the republics going. Do you, do you think that, well, let me say, let me, let me say this, is, is one of the reasons perhaps that the United States had at its, it had a nearly untapped continent's worth of resources and space, whereas none of these other places they were exporting an Enlightenment revolution to had access to that. They were still, you know, struggling for a much smaller set of resources, uh, land, wealth, food, that, and, and is that the reason that the U.S. revolution, or a big reason the U.S. revolution worked, where these other exported ideological revolutions didn't? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, and there are differences between the American case and when we're looking at, say, the European revolutions, which, you know, the French Revolution, again, spectacularly failed. The, you know, revolutions were crushed in 1830 and 1848. And I think part of that is political. So, you know, and military on some level. So these revolutions were crushed politically and militarily by the power of the empires and the monarchs they're trying to fight against. Right. But your question does raise a really interesting point in terms of how our new republic did sustain itself, because that was not a given, you know, like we're saying, it was really kind of exceptional throughout the Atlantic world in this time period. And one of the things that did allow this new republic to gain the resources that it needed to keep sustaining itself was all of this land. So particularly when we look at people like Thomas Jefferson and the Jeffersonian Democratic Republican Party, one of the early philosophies of how our new republic should work was the idea of the agrarian republic, which basically meant agrarians or farmers were, you know, the salt of the earth, the independent farmers who had the virtue necessary through their independence to be able to be good Republican citizens. And of course, Thomas Jefferson's idea for how to ensure that there would be enough land to have a nation of farmers was to buy more land, the right. Louisiana Purchase when he purchased, you know, doubled the size of the United States, purchasing French Louisiana. And so on the one hand, this land was fundamentally tied up into our, our idea of how the Republic was going to work. Of course, the tragic flip side was this land was not empty. 
Native Americans lived on this land. And of course, the United States tragically set out on a course of displacement and removal, really going all the way back to George Washington, where the United States was using the power of its military to forcibly remove Native Americans from this land to open up the land for white farmers instead. And so in service of this idea of Republican farmers and the Republic, our nation tragically betrayed its values by displacing and harming Native Americans. Right. And, and you know, the, the, the great example we have of, of European views of that early Republic is, of course, de Tocqueville. And uh, I think a lot of de Tocqueville is, oh, what's the word, disgusted admiration, yeah. perhaps, <laughs> you know, because especially in terms of, and this is, this is something I've looked into, and we did an exhibit here recently about Indian removal, and mm -hmm. I've got a quote from him because it's absolutely perfect. I'm sure you know the one. The Americans of the United States have accomplished the removal of Native Americans with singular felicity, tranquility, legally, philanthropically, without shedding blood, and without violating a single great principle of morality in the eyes of the world. It is impossible to destroy men with more respect for the laws of humanity. What a quote. <laughs> I mean, and I think that really does embody a lot of the, you know, as you said earlier, hypocrisy and these early actions and views, because on the one hand, you know, here's the United States founded upon these amazing principles. And on the other hand, the United States is betraying those very principles in pursuit of them. Problematic. Yeah. All have fallen short as the, as right. they say. So right. well, gosh, I mean, we could go on forever and ever, but we can't, unfortunately, we're about out of time. But I wanted to thank you for joining us, and hopefully I can drag you in some, for some more talks. You've got a, a wide breadth of knowledge, especially about the American South and, and international history. So I sure appreciate you joining us, and tell all your friends to listen to your podcast, and it'll boost our listenership to nearly four. I will, and thanks. I enjoyed it. <laughs> thanks. All right, guys, we will uh, see you next time, and until then... Be sure and follow our uh, Facebook page to see the events we have coming up. Be sure and keep downloading this podcast. Stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.